Good morning. I bet I know what you're thinking. That's it. <laughs> yeah. Wait a minute. That doesn't look like Pastor John to me. Uh, John um, was asked to officiate at the Renault wedding last night. Uh, Doug and Kathy Renault, who lead our prayer and compassion ministry, married off their son Ben to the beautiful Jessica. And John was there last night in Fallbrook doing the wedding. Uh, he was here this morning breaking eggs in the kitchen. I hope you didn't have breakfast. Well, maybe you did. It's okay. <laughs> and I have the honor, the privilege to get to fill in for him today. If you came today hoping to hear Pastor John, I know you're disappointed. It's okay. He'll be back. But I have good news for you if you came today hoping to hear the Word of God. You picked a great, great morning to come. Not so much for the preaching, but because of the, the verses we're going to look at. We're going to spend our time this morning to see if we can understand one word. It's a key word in the Bible. It's a word we use a lot. We use it very frequently to mean all kinds of things. But usually how we use the word means very, something very different than the way God uses the word. But the word is so simple we teach our children to say it. I have taught my birds, my parrots, to say this word. The word is love. And we're going to see today uh, what God has, to, how he would define the word love. And if we can leave this morning understanding love from God's perspective, we will know something that most people go their whole lives and never understand. That love in its highest form is not an emotion. It's not a feeling. It's a choice. I, the verses we're going to look at are going to be familiar to you. They were familiar to me, but I have never in my life been so impacted by a study. You know, you prepare to come to present a message, but what, it is, what it's been for me this week is just the Lord showing me that I can live very differently than I used to live. And I have changed. I'm different. We'll talk about that. But first, let's open in prayer. Dear Father, uh, we, we love you so. Uh, Father, we've come. We've given up our time this morning, and now we've, we've sung to you. We've given up our, our offering, and now we want to give you our attention. To your word, Lord, this is not time to listen to somebody. Uh, God forbid I would add my two cents to anything you had to say. We want to hear from you. Will your Holy Spirit please open our ears and eyes and hearts to this amazing love that you have for us and that you can give us to love others. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Our text today is 1 Corinthians chapter 13. If you've ever been to a wedding, you've heard this, <laughs> heard this read. It's, it's known as the love chapter. Uh, many consider this to be the greatest literary passage that Paul ever wrote. While you're turning there, I'll tell you that the book of 1 Corinthians is, a, is actually a letter that Paul wrote to the church of Corinth. The church of Corinth is a church that Paul himself founded on his second missionary journey. On Paul's second missionary journey, he went to Philippi, then he went to Thessalonica, then he went to, to Berea, not Brea. He didn't get this far. He went to Berea, and then he went to Greece, and he, he went to Athens, and then he went about 45 miles to the west, and he went to Corinth, and he founded this church. And the Bible tells us in Acts chapter 18 that, that uh, Paul spent 18 months, a year and a half, pastoring, leading, teaching this church the Word of God. Can you imagine sitting under Paul's teaching for a year and a half? And then the Lord called him to Ephesus, which is over in what we call Turkey today. And it was when Paul was in Turkey, a couple of years later, he heard that his beloved church in Corinth was falling into dysfunction. Uh, I think today we would say they're a hot mess. Because they started allowing and embracing 
false doctrine. So Paul wrote 1 Corinthians to help them get their priorities straight. They were a church that cared much more about blending in with the world than they did about following the Lord. And Paul wrote to them about their priorities in this chapter specifically to help them and us understand something amazing. That next, right below, loving Jesus Christ with all our heart, the very best, next best thing you and I can do is love each other and love everyone God brings into our lives. Let's read um, 1 Corinthians 13 together. As, like I said, one of the greatest literary passages, if not the, that Paul ever wrote. If I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, but do not have love, I'm only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. Verse 4, love is patient, love is kind. It does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud, it does not dishonor others, it is not self-seeking, it is not easily angered, it keeps no records of wrong. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. I think we should reread verse 1 because there's some fine print there you might have missed. If I speak in the tongues of men or of angels but do not have a college degree or a certificate from Toastmasters International or an unrivaled vocabulary, is that what it says? Simple word again. If I do not have love, I'm just a noisy gong or symbol. In Paul's day, the people of Corinth loved and admired eloquent speaking, especially people that could speak multiple languages. So Paul's point is, okay, <coughs> eloquent speaking in any language, even a heavenly language, is just annoying if it doesn't come with love. Have you ever heard someone preach a message or give a speech you could tell their heart wasn't in it. They were just putting on a show for you or just you know, going through the motions, blah, blah, you know. Well, our, our English language has a word. English language is hard to learn uh, because we're always inventing new words. Well, we have a word in the English language is invented to describe loveless speaking. And the word is blah, as in blah, 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 blah. That's it, without love. How would you rate your own speaking ability? Would you think of yourself, do you think of yourself as a gifted communicator? The Bible will tell us that being gifted is not the most important thing. If you really want to get through to people, love the people you're talking to. Can't do better than that. I think we should pause here and define the word love. I want to start with English, and then I'll go to Greek. English is much more difficult. Because in English, we, <laughs> we have a lot of words that mean love. For example, I would tell you, I love the Lord. I love my family. I love this church. I love days off. I love Maui. I love Mexican food. Now, how I feel about Jesus and how I, is very different than how I feel about my family and how I feel about a burrito. <laughs> Yet, when we use the word love... We all seem to kind of understand what we mean. There, there are more uses of this word. I wrote them down so we could think about them. We have love nests. 
love seats, love triangles, love songs, love birds, love potions. Some of us have love handles. <laughs> we define love as first love, puppy love, true love, tainted love, tough love. If you go to the Mirage Hotel in Las Vegas, you can see Beatles' love. We can find love, lose love, make love, or fall in or out of love. Popular songs have taught us love is a battlefield. You always hurt the one you love. Love will keep us together. You can't hurry, love. No, you just got to wait. Love don't come easy. It's a game of give and take. Country Western singers, I think, win the prize for best love song titles, and I have a few for you. If love were oil, I'd be a quart low. <laughs> I sent her artificial flowers for her artificial love. Still miss you, baby, but my aim's getting better. <laughs> Tennis must be your racket, because love means nothing to you. I can tell who plays tennis and who doesn't. You know, in tennis, if you get a zero, it's called love. Never mind. Last song, How Can I Miss You When You Won't Go Away. <laughs> so much for the English. In the Greek, the word we care about is the word love as used in our text today, and it is the word agape. Very familiar to you. PJ has been teaching us this as we've gone through Romans. It's used in Romans throughout, and it's used here in 1 Corinthians throughout. Agape love is not romantic. It is not an affection or a fondness for something or somebody. Agape love is unconditional. It'll love whether it gets love back in, at all. It'll love the unlovable. It is the highest form of love there is. It is the love that God has for us, the love that Jesus has for the Father. If you'll turn to Romans 5.8, we studied this with PJ a few months ago. Great passage in this context. In Romans 5.8, Paul writes, But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God demonstrated what his agape love looks like, what it does. He demonstrated it. Why do we need a demonstration? Because love is complicated. But God demonstrates how his unconditional love works. How did he do that? By sending his son Jesus to die. When? While we were still sinners. What does that mean, while we were still sinners? It means God sent Jesus to die for us before we even cared. We didn't care. God sent Jesus to die for us when we were at our worst, not at our best. God's love is active. He doesn't just say he loves us, he demonstrates it. In 1 John 4, 9 and 11, 9 to 11, there's a, another passage that's similar to what we just read in Romans 5, 8 that shows God, again, demonstrating his, his love for us. 1 John 4, 9 to 11 says, This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only Son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we ought to love one another. Then down to verse 19, we love because he first loved us. God sent his son, his one and only son, to die, to pay the death penalty 
we were supposed to pay so we could live and love through him. So what is love? Philosophers have debated that question forever. We have it right here in verse 10. This is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us. The mystery of the universe, the miracle of the universe, is not that you and I love a magnificent, holy, righteous, faithful, loving God. The miracle is he loves us, just as we are. Jesus purchased you and I with his blood. And you know what? He doesn't have buyer's remorse. I would. If I was God and I purchased me, I'd be bummed about that. No buyer's remorse. Verse 11, dear friends, since God so loved us, we ought to love one another. Clearly, clearly this love doesn't come automatically to us or we would not have to be exhorted to do it. It is a choice. We can't produce this kind of selfless love in ourselves. We have to choose to do so out of obedience because God first loved us. Verse 19 says, we love because he first loved us. Jesus died for our sins. And when he did, he opened the doors of heaven so we could have salvation. But his death did something else that we have to pay attention to. His death gave us the privilege and the obligation to follow his pattern of sacrificial love. Selfless, selfless, sacrificial love is agape love. Listen to the words of Jesus in the, in the Gospel of John, chapter 13, 13:34. Again, we've turned to this passage many times in our church, but so appropriate here. Jesus says, a new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. Jesus did not say, may I have your attention, please? I have a suggestion. Jesus did not say, here's a goal I'd like you all to shoot for when you have time. It's a mistake to think of these words of Jesus as a hallmark card kind of inspirational thought. Oh, how sweet. Oh, what a sweet thought. Jesus wants us to have love for each other. That, that's sweet. That's nice. That's a good idea. Jesus' words here are not sweet. They're emphatic. It is a direct command. It is a direct order. Our obedience is required. And as I've studied this week, I have just been overwhelmed by how many times in my life I know for certain that God wanted me to respond to somebody in love, and I didn't do it. I didn't do it. I was busy. I was tired. I was angry. I was hurt. So I didn't feel like loving them at that time. As if it's okay for me to pick and choose when I'm going to obey the Lord and when I don't need to. This is the surefire recipe for discouragement in the Christian life. When I read what the Bible says and then I go out and do some of it, just the parts that are easy for me, I'm just asking for failure. And I found failure. My relationship with the Lord was so up and down. There were days I felt really close. Other days I was miles away. He didn't move because he promises he'll never move. It was me. I was tiptoeing away in disobedience or I was running away and then I'd come back and then I'd pull away again. 
I remember years ago looking up into a blue sky in a very low point in my life, and I shouted out loud, God, I am useless to you. When we get that discouraged, it's tempting to walk away, walk away from the Lord, as if it's the Lord's fault. I mean, it's, in fact, it's my disobedience that let me down, not what Christ has done. You know, the, <laughs> the Lord has given us his word. He's given us his instructions here and, and his commands. But it's just so easy to disobey God and then blame him when our life doesn't turn out like we want. In John 13:34, Jesus did not say, love one another as best as you can. Give it your best shot. Willpower. Go, go get them. Go, go have love. He said, as I, as I have loved you, he is the standard. As Jesus has loved us, so we must love each other. C.S. Lewis is one of my favorite authors. He, he, he wrote, things like, things like loving or going to sleep are done worst when we try hardest to do them. You ever try to make yourself go to sleep? <laughs> you know, you've got to get up early the next day for something, so, okay, I'm going to go to bed early, but you're not sleepy. So you lay there and you try to convince yourself you're falling asleep when you know you're not. And the harder you try, the more stressed you get, and the, hard, the more awake you are, and the more things spin around. Okay, so, yeah, that's, try to force yourself to go to sleep. Some of you are doing a really good job this morning, by the way. <laughs> what about forcing yourself to love somebody you don't even know? Or don't like. C.S. Lewis is right. We can't make ourselves do it. Can't force it. So how do we obey Christ's command? Please keep your place in 1 Corinthians 13 because I promise we're coming back. But turn to Colossians. It's about four or five books over to the right. Colossians chapter 3. Paul also wrote this book. And there's some interesting language here that helps us understand how we can love everyone that God brings into our lives. Paul is going to explain that we can't manufacture this kind of selfless love by earthly means. We need to seek it from above. So Colossians 3, verses 1 to 2. Since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is. Seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. First, we have to make sure we've given our hearts to Christ. Then, only then, Do we have access to the throne of heaven? We can set our hearts and minds on things above where Jesus is. When we set our hearts, it means we're getting our feelings and emotions there. When we set our mind, it means we're getting our thoughts there. What happens when we focus on earthly things? We become slaves to our circumstances. Look, okay, (laughs) we love people that are easy to love. Okay, yes. But what about the... People that are just not our cup of tea kind of try to avoid those folks, right? You meet somebody and they, well, that guy's politics. Yes, they're too weird. And this guy over here smells kind of funny. This other person, they're just ill-tempered. they got an even disposition. They're mad all the time. I want to avoid them. We can't get past people's flaws and how they make us feel. So we can barely tolerate them, let alone Try to love them? That's out of the question. But that's if we focus on earthly things. We're commanded to put our mind on heavenly things. <clears throat> when we have Christ in our life and we, live, and we live to give him our full attention, you know what happens? It's a game changer. It changes everything. 
All the rules are, all the earthly rules are gone. We no longer have to be slaves to our circumstances. We are set free to see people as Christ sees them. We still see flaws in people, okay, but we're so aware that we have our own flaws. And the Lord has forgiven us so much. We don't worry so much that other people are troubled and have problems. We, we accept them. We love them, just like Christ has accepted us. And more than that, when we focus on Jesus, we become overwhelmed by him. I don't know if this happens for you, but when I focus on a problem, you know what happens? I don't solve the problem. I get overwhelmed by the problem. But when I focus on Christ, I get overwhelmed by Christ. His thoughts become my thoughts. His love becomes my love. And I can actually start to see people differently, and I can feel differently about them. So that raises the question then, so what does agape, selfless love feel like? We have an answer. Paul is going to explain to us that we are not commanded to have a feeling. We are commanded to have love. And nowhere in the Bible is agape love ever described as a feeling. It's always described as an action. Look at uh, Colossians uh, 3, uh, 12 to 14. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourself with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive each other if any of you has a grievance against someone. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. First off, let's not read past that first opening sentence there. We are dearly loved. God is not the man upstairs that kind of looks in on us from time to time. We are, look what it says, we are chosen, holy, set apart, dearly loved. You're not going to hear any better news than that today or the rest of your life. We are dearly loved by God. We're told in verse 12 to clothe ourselves with these godly, loving virtues. Again, not feelings. We're not told to get a warm and fuzzy, cozy feeling. We're told to put on compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience. These are not feelings. These are loving actions. But again, we're not, uh, wow, these, these virtues are not automatic for us. We have to clothe ourselves. We have to choose to wrap ourselves up in these things. We're told to bear with each other. This means to accept each other just as we are. Don't try to change me. Just accept me the way I am. And we're told to forgive people as long as they haven't done anything too bad. Is that what it says? kind of wish it said that. That's not what it says. Our standard for forgiving is not ourselves. Our standard is the Lord. And what has he forgiven us? Everything. All of our sins, past, present, future. The little bitty ones and those big old ones. And Jesus says, I'm your standard. Forgive people like I have forgiven you. Verse 14 says, And over all of these virtues, compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience, and forgiveness, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. We have to put on love above everything. Just like we decide what to clothes we're going to put on every day, we need to decide what kind of love we're going to put on every day. This, this may not amaze you. It amazed me to really think about love that way because I would not think about leaving my house without putting on clothes. Aren't you grateful for that? But how many times have I left my house and didn't put on love? This past week, I've started to, to really make note of the times where I was putting on love as an act of my will and when I forgot to. Have you ever gone on a diet and you start by writing down what you eat normally during the day? 
That, that can be a shocking list. I made a shocking list of how often and how long I would go through the day before I would remember to put on love. But when I did, I felt so differently about people I was with. I listened a lot better. I accept them a lot easier. I'm kinder. I'm more patient. I'm more relaxed. I discovered this week in my scientific study, when is the best time to put on love? Absolutely the best time to put on love. You want to know when that is? I'll tell you. Before I get out of bed. Before I talk to my family. Before I get in the car and drive to work before I walk in the office, before every meeting and during the meeting and after the meeting, before I get in the car to come home. It's an ongoing process. It never stops for us. We are never supposed to stop loving. Ongoing process. Putting our hearts and minds on things above. If you'll turn back to 1 Corinthians 13, we'll wrap this up. In verse 1, remember, Paul said that even if I speak with tongues and of angels, and if I speak with any language, even a heavenly one, I am annoying if I don't have love. Look what he says in verse 2. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and I have a faith that can move mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. Now, Paul had all of these gifts. He had prophecy. He could fathom all mysteries. He was the, next to the Lord. He was the greatest Bible teacher probably of all time. He had faith that could move mountains. Of course he did. But Paul did not say the gifts are nothing. He said he, he is nothing without love. It would be really easy to admire Paul for his giftedness. And I think in a wonderful church like this, it might be easy for us to, to appreciate and admire each other for our giftedness. Paul says no. Don't make it about the gifts. Never make the gifts more important than your love for each other. Our walk with Christ never is a matter of our giftedness. Never is. It's a matter of our godliness. And godliness shows itself in our love for him and everyone he brings into our life. Without love, we're nothing. Verse 3, Paul writes, If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship, that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. Again, Paul didn't say there's, that it's, there's something wrong with giving to the poor or that suffer, suffering hardship is nothing. He says he gains nothing if his motive is selfish instead of selfless. And now we come to God's definition of the word love. It is glorious. Verses 4 to 6. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. It, love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. Again, nowhere in this definition do we read anything about having a feeling or an emotion. Love is an action. Love shows itself, not in how we feel, but in how we behave, how we act. Sometimes we make the mistake, I have done this so many times I've lost count. Or I wait to have a feeling before I respond correctly. No, that's not what we're commanded to do. We're commanded to decide first, I'm going to love. Feeling will come after that. Let's go through this list. It's a great list. Love is patient and kind. Another word for the, uh, for the word patient I really like is long-suffering. When we have patience and kindness, we are long-suffering. We're marathon runners. We can put up with a lot <coughs> over a lot of long, rough road. 
And you know what happens when we get tired and our tank's empty? Still doesn't matter. Because we're not relying on our tank. We're keeping our mind on heavenly things. Love does not envy. Do you know why love does not envy? It can't. It's impossible for love to envy. The only way I can be envious is if I'm putting my want or need over yours or somebody else's. And love never does that. Love does not boast. Okay, <laughs> we, we live in a world and in a community that makes boasting an art form. I mean, everything's the best, the greatest. Everything's hype. Love does not boast, doesn't brag, never exaggerates. Because love is focused on above, not on things below. Love has no interest in puffing up, none. The only thing we're focused on is trying to be more like our Lord. Having you look at me in a better light means nothing. Love is not proud. Pet peeve. You ever watch football? <coughs> watch somebody out there make a play, a good play or an average play, and they're out there pounding their chest and doing a thing and a dance thing, and they're, they're like what? They're the only person on the field. They don't have other teammates. They don't have people blocking for them. They don't have coaches over there. They don't have trainers over there that fix them up. They don't have fans in the stands paying ridiculous prices so they can have ridiculous salaries. They don't have parents that got them through Pop Warner and all those things. They don't have college coaches that train them. What? They're all in this alone. Look at me. That's pride. You know what love understands? Love understands that everything I have comes from the Lord. Every success, every gift, even the opportunities to use that gift. My next heartbeat comes from the Lord. Love fills us with gratitude, not with pride. Love does not dishonor others. <coughs> it's never rude or disrespectful to anyone. Okay, I think I know what some of you just thought. Maybe you just thought, well, wait a minute. What if somebody dishonors me first? If they fire the first shot, I get to return fire, right? Now, if you asked me, I might have told you something different. Let's see what the Lord would say to us. Jesus is our example for how to respond when people disrespect us. 1 Peter 2.23 says, When they hurled their insults at him, at Jesus, they hurled their insults at Jesus, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges just, justly. Jesus entrusted himself. You know what that means? This amazed me this week. It means he handed himself over to God because he had perfect confidence in God's sovereignty and righteousness. Perfect confidence. Do we have confidence that God can handle our situation better than we can? Think about that. <clears throat> Do we have confidence that God can handle our situation better than we can? If we do, then we don't need to retaliate when we're wronged. We can trust the Lord to make the best of it, even if we can't see the best in that situation. It is not easy for me to keep my mouth shut, as you're probably noticing. And when somebody disrespects me or says something that's not true, my nature is to answer back. And I, I'm good at arguing. I can answer back. Every time I've kept my mouth shut, I have been delighted I did that. Every time, never a regret. If you have ever 
been in a situation where you've been wronged or disrespected and you keep your mouth shut and watch the Lord resolve it, it's the, it's the greatest blessing you'll ever have. It's one thing to get in there and try to sort it out yourself. It's another thing. Just sit back, be quiet, let the Lord deal with it. Love is not self-seeking. Love does not need a spotlight. Look at me. You see what I'm doing over here? I'm going to do it again over here. Watch. Watch. Love does not need the recognition. Love likes to give and loves to serve just because that's what love does. Now, sometimes in a church we get confused about when we should thank people because if we thank them, do they lose their, their crowns in heaven or something? No, it's kind to thank people. Thank the people that greet you at the door. Thank the ushers. Thank the people that help you park and cook the food or teach your child. It's wonderful to thank people. But it's just that love does not seek the recognition. Here's a good one. Love is not (coughs) easily angered. It keeps no records of wrong. Love has a really long fuse. Love really can forgive and forget. You know, some people hoard their hurts. They, they They make a trophy case out of everything somebody's done to them. They've got dates, they've got times, they've got places, they've got pictures. If you come over to their house, they'll be happy to open that cabinet and share, share them with you, right? Look at all these things that happen. Hoard their hurt. You know what love does? Love throws hurts away, just like stinky garbage. Throws it away. You know what happens if we keep track of all the wrongs people do to us? We become bitter. And I want to read you a quote. I heard this on the radio. I did not think this up myself, but it, and I don't know who said it, but it was so good, I want to share it with you. Bitterness is like drinking poison and expecting the other person to die. Bitterness is like drinking poison and expecting the other person to die. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. Love wants no part of anything evil. It's too busy focusing on what is good. And here are five absolutes about agape love. Verse 7 to 8a. This is from the New Living Translation. (coughs) Love never gives up, never loses faith, is always hopeful, and endures through every circumstance. Love never fails. Friends can fail us. Loved ones can fail us. Our leaders can fail us. For heaven's sake, even our best efforts can fail us. But the love of God and the love from God never fails. One last question to deal with. What about that person you've been thinking about for the last half hour? You know which one I mean. It's that person that comes into your life, and when that person is around, you do not feel like putting on love. You feel like putting on boxing gloves or brass knuckles because you know they're out to get you. What would the Lord have us do with people that hate us? That's okay. <laughs> Matthew 5. If you turn there, we're done with uh, 1 Corinthians 13 for today. Matthew chapter 5. <clears throat> we'll close with these words from Jesus in his Sermon on the Mount. I am certain when Christ said these words, it must have shocked the people that were there in his day, and maybe it will shock us. But he answers the question about how to deal with enemies. Matthew 5, verses 43 to 48. He says, You have heard that it was said... Love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain to the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, 
as your heavenly Father is perfect. First off, Jesus did not say, love what your enemies do. He said to love and pray for them. Jesus freely acknowledges we can have enemies. Jesus had enemies, and so did the apostles and the prophets. But Jesus tells us in a command, not a suggestion, a command, to love our enemies and pray for those who hurt us. Why? So that we may be children of our Father in heaven. It means we have a choice. We have to make a choice. Are we going to live by the world's standards or God's standards? And I'll tell you something you already know, but it's, it's important we understand. God's standards are much higher than the world's. They're much, much, much more difficult. How high are God's standards? Look at how Jesus finished in verse 48. Be perfect. Therefore, as your Father is perfect. We can't live by that standard. How can we be perfect? We can't. We can't do it. But God, who is perfect, cannot lower his standard without compromising his own perfection. He cannot set an imperfect standard of righteousness or of our behavior. So how can we be perfect? The marvelous truth of the gospel is that Jesus has met that standard on our behalf. Let me read to you 2 Corinthians 5.21 that says, God made him, Jesus, who had no sin, to be sin for us, so that in Jesus we might become the righteousness of God. In Christ, we can be perfect. In Christ, we can be everything we were created to be. The tragedy is when we settle for something less than that. When we love and we pray for our enemies, it's really difficult. And our enemies don't change at that moment, but we change. And that's the point. But don't be surprised if your enemies do change over time as you love and pray for them. Do you have an enemy that you thought about? The world will tell you to hate them. Jesus says, love and pray for them. Which voice are you going to listen to? It's a choice. Let me close with the, uh, the Gospel of Mark, 12th chapter. A teacher asked Jesus, of all the commandments, which is the most important? Jesus answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind and all your strength. The second is this, love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. There's no commandment greater than to love. Those are words, that is a command straight from the Lord's lips to our hearts. Will we obey? Yeah, but Lord, oh, you don't know this person. Will we obey? Father, this person is so difficult and done. Will we obey? There's always a reason not to obey. Do we want to keep excusing ourselves or do we want to surrender into his arms and trust ourselves to his complete sovereignty and righteousness? Love in the highest form is not an emotion. It's not a feeling. It's a choice. Let's pray. Dear Father, we love you so. Thank you for your love. How you love us, how you love me, um, you'll have to explain that to me in heaven. We thank you for your love, Father. I pray that we would see your love so clearly that it would be our guiding light, our, our model for how to love others. May we be people that learn how to put on love. Let us be people, Father, that uh, look at you and 
love others as you love us and forgive others as you have forgiven us. Father, help teach us what we don't know. Show us what we can't see. Make us what we cannot be without you as our Lord and our Savior. And we ask this for Jesus' sake. Amen.